The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yeah, back in my day, things were different. I'm sure they were, old-timer, I'm sure they were. But, you know, the old-timer's got a point. There have been things that have come and gone over the last century or so. Music, comics, toys, stories, genres, all kinds of things that have come and have come become popular and then faded out of existence so today we're going to talk about the things that have been lost to time over the last hundred years so don in our little temporal journey into uh historical oddities where should we start that's a pretty good way of putting it um there's a lot to cover because we were we were discussing this uh just before starting a recording about Mm -hmm. how it's interesting to follow the progression and the changes and what's popular and what's prevalent and then what kind of disappears because it kind of gives you a snapshot of where any kind of given society is at any point in time. Right. Well, we've talked about that before, how when you look at, say, the different decades and different eras, they only get named and defined retroactively. Mm-hmm. And especially in a modern context, that typically is done based on the entertainment that people are into at any given time. Right. So, like, you can't think of the 70s without, like, you know, the... And that only happens later because when you're in the 70s, you're just hearing... All the time. It, it, you don't realize that's a thing. Until, right. until it's not there. And then you're like, oh, back in this day, they did that. And then all that hindsight gets grouped together retroactively. Right. Makes sense. Okay, so we categorize history based on where we are right now and how then was different than now. Yeah. Wait, and so, sorry. And how that time was different than modern time. Yeah, actually, you're right in both cases. Okay. Because <laughs> it, it... Well, exactly. Okay, thank you. Double right. <laughs> Because it came to mind there were three things recently that I have partaken Mm -hmm. of that kind of made me think of it. One was a podcast that was about how we get the Old West wrong. Oh, interesting. What's the name of the show? It was was a recent one on uh, Cracked. Oh, okay. And they mentioned something about uh, Western movies that will come up here in the movie section. And you'll be like, oh my God, that's right. And that made me think of that about how entertainment differed. Um, mm-hmm. Jack sent a link just the, the day we're recording that was a collection of the intro sequences for the mid-season replacements on network TV in the United States in the year 1979. Ooh, 1979. <laughs> and, and if you watched it, there were a lot of shows that they just don't make shows like that anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of like, um, like Animal House ripoffs, but 
in 79, there was apparently a whole bunch of them. Well, again, whatever was popular a year or so ago in the theater, they were making for TV at that point. Yep. And then the last thing that I was thinking of was, uh, again, the, the video that got sent around was uh, part of uh, Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Who, if he's listening, we're still coming for you. Anyway, call back. But <laughs> mm-hmm. where he was talking about now that he's older, he just really doesn't pay attention to the stuff he doesn't like. Right. Which makes perfect sense. There's other stuff to enjoy. But I find when I get older, I become fascinated with the things I don't like. Because I get, I'm interested in the hows and whys of, why was this popular? Why was this a mm. thing? And when you put that together, it was it was this notion of, you can tell, kind of gauge the temperature of society by what's the, the big thing going on. Definitely. Oh, no, I, I 100% agree with you. Uh, so remember, all art is a reflection of the society that created it. Yeah. And it's all the re- product of the you could say the unconscious of the artist and uh, their relationship with society. Yep. And I think that's another one of those things that we can only really understand retroactively. This is why a lot of people have that idea that, you know, the art speaks for itself because in a weird way it actually does. Often the artist is only somewhat aware of why they're doing what they're doing when they're creating art. Mm-hmm. And they may never know exactly why they did what they did. It's just like, well, it just felt right. Or that's just the way they thought it should go. And usually it's their subconscious uh, trying to work something out or playing with some idea or something else. That's why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. And that applies to all art, but it definitely applies to music and, of course, um, writing, comics, movies, television, whatever, which are very much mirrors of the time they exist in. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think music is is a, the the weird medium because it's the fastest one, right? Because it, it's a lot. You can write a song quicker than you can write like a movie and put put it together. Yeah, but even back in the old days, the process of writing a song and then getting it recorded and getting the the album printed and everything, there was still quite a delay back in the old days. It's not like now when you could literally do it in one day, just actually a couple hours. Yeah, but the thing with that too, though, was that applied to to movies and that as well, that it was a lot harder to put them out. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes and no. I mean, since the 1930s, 30s, well, late 30s, early 40s, when the studios pretty much perfected their studio system and figured out how all this crap worked. After that, getting movies out wasn't really that big a deal. I mean, they, you know, there were distributors, there's exhibitors, there's producers, and it's just a system you just plug yourself into and off you up, and you're off and running. Oh, you're talking stock footage. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that too. Um, <laughs> But the point is, is that it, um, yeah, it wasn't really that, I, I, correction, the hardest part of a movie really is getting the damn thing made in the first place. Yeah. Once it's put together, getting it out there isn't really that big a deal. It kind of depends on the era, and that's something that I think is going to come up too. Okay. Well, let's stop pussyfooting around it and let's, <laughs> let's dive into some of this stuff. So what uh, medium or method do you want to work with first? I think probably the best place to start would be comic books. 
Ah, comic books are always a great place to start. I agree. <laughs> we haven't discussed them for a while, so. That's true. It's, yeah, it's been a bit. All right. So in that case, um, what comics should we be discussing, Don? What have we lost? Well, this is a good one because I think we're going to see that it, it ties into something we were talking about a little while ago, a few shows back. That mm-hmm. things will shift, that when the new bright, shiny medium comes out, everything kind of gravitates towards that and other stuff kind of falls by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Because Golden Age comic books were just a cornucopia of, oh my God, there's a series about that. Right. And that kind of goes away as movies and then television become more prevalent. But mm-hmm. if you go back to the Golden Age, there's a bunch of different genres of comic book that would be totally unthinkable today. Okay, let's hear some examples. Uh, probably the first one that I can think of are Hillbilly comics. Those, I assume, are kind of spun off of the popularity of uh, Little Abner? I'm betting they are. Uh, Little Abner was a newspaper strip. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was super popular. Oh, it was insane. And again, newspaper strips had credibility. Yeah. Comic books didn't. They were kind of like your poor brain-damaged cousin of the newspaper strips. And I think you're right. But... Oh my god, there were so damn many of them. Back in, like, say, the 40s and the 50s. Mm-hmm. There were so many hillbilly comics. And yeah, they were basically, like, they, they were little Abner to various degrees. Some of them just weren't even <laughs> even pretending. Yeah, they're all just rip-offs of little Abner. Yeah. Little Abner's super popular, so why not? Yeah, and because and, it always featured the big dumb glute, mm-hmm. his long-suffering girlfriend... Um, that'd be the, the group, the, the, the family of even more stereotypically hickish guys that were the active villains of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd get numerous, like, big city folk that would come in and bad things would happen to them and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, 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 and again, it, I, I find it, because I've, I've got, like, a weird fixation with Golden Age comic books. Yes, you do. And, oh my god, there were so many. And then... Okay, now here's an interesting question. Uh-oh. Sorry, I, I have a question. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so is that why in the, I guess it would be in the 50s, maybe the 60s, definitely in that area, um, we saw shows like uh, Green Acres and the Beverly Hillbillies? Are they also a reflection of that wave of culture? Uh, yeah, they are, because around that time, the, the hillbilly thing, and again, I think you're right, I think it's pretty much entirely Little Abner's fault. But the hillbilly thing was kind of a big deal for a long time. Like that, that played into like the Dan show. you Abner. Yeah, because when you talk about like the the Beverly Hillbillies, and I and I believe it was um, referred to as the the Hooterville uh, triplet, because they were all basically the same continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That was the stereotypical hillbilly thing. The the music. The, the old school, like, uh, twangin' and, and yowlin' country music was getting popular at that time. Right. I think that was around the, the era, oh, what the hell are they called? Disney had uh, the, the Country Bears Jamboree, mm-hmm. which were hillbilly bears that played music. Like, for some reason, that was a, a thing going well into the 70s, <laughs> and then it just vanished. I, I think... If, if I'd have to take my um, put on my uh, sociologist hat and take a gander at it, I would say that 
what's going on is during that period, we had the, well, we, I guess Canadians too, had the, um, the country folk were more moving to the city. They were yeah. integrating. So there were a lot of co- these country folk that were coming to the big city. And so there's, there's a wave of yeah integration going on. And one of the reasons it stops in the 70s is that integration largely stops as well. I mean, it's not like country folks stop moving to the city, but there's not as many just absolute hicks as there were back in the day. <laughs> That's a politically incorrect way of putting it, but how did, how did that go? We prefer the term Appalachian American, but... <laughs> there we go. Exactly. But if you think about it, I mean, there's a certain point where the hillbillies are so... are modernizing right so Mm. there's a certain point where there just aren't that many of them at that point but there were a large number of um uh not just appalachians but more but not just rural but like absolute backwoods communities that existed all across the united states yeah and during this period they're being connected up with the rest of the world by roads by telephones by other systems right Mm -hmm. and so the people of the modern era, the city are coming now coming in contact with them and vice versa. Yeah. And so I think that that's where we're getting a lot of the whole hillbilly thing because people are starting to actually get to know hillbillies because they're moving into the city and they're interacting with them. And it's like, and so the humor only works if it's relatable, right? There has to be something in society that people are looking at going, yeah, hillbillies. Now there is another possibility, Mm -hmm. um, which is that, it could also reflect uh, immigration and immigrants, but it was even back then, it was kind of considered poor taste to like just laugh with the dumb immigrants. So let's laugh at our own dumb people instead. I mean, based on my limited global experience, um, every country has their version of hillbillies. Like yeah. Every country I'm in has their hillbilly stereotypes. They're, they just belong to different groups depending on the country. Like up here in Canada, we have, of course, the. Okay, that was your opening, but okay, we'll go with that. (laughs) Um, We have, of course, the noofs Mm -hmm. that we used to make jokes about. Uh, We don't do that so much anymore because, again, it's not considered kind to do that anymore. Um, And maybe occasionally the Frenchies. But for the most part, we make fun of the noofs. Mm -hmm. The Americans make fun of the Appalachians and... Many other countries, the Japanese have their rural people too. I'm trying to remember what they're called, but anyway, well, they, they some of the J- Japan- some of the provinces up in the north, yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. Japan it depends where you go. It might be the Ainu in the north, or yeah. the big city uh, Japanese types. I think still see the uh, Okinawans as kind of being a little backwards. Yeah, they do definitely, and some of the northern prefectures as well definitely yeah. are seen as being very rural. And, you know, people who live way deep up in the mountains and such are still are considered a bunch of rural hicks by by Tokyo and Kyoto and uh, whatever standards. Yeah. Um, and Korea has them, too. Uh, Taiwan has them, too. Everyone has their stereotypes of certain groups that they look at and say, oh, those guys are kind of backwards. And it's kind of amusing. Yeah, I th- it's not just that that they were amusing. I think I think you're right. Uh, the only thing I disagree with is I don't think they were stand-ins for foreigners because it was okay to make foreigners back then to make fun of them. Oh, that is true. That and, is true. And they weren't always just comedy because um, going into the 70s, the the evil backwoods sheriff guy was a popular villain. Well, that's true. And, of course, don't forget Deliverance. Yeah. Who, ca- so... who could? <laughs> Yeah, if you could. Yeah, exactly. Um, good luck. Um, 
that no, I think you're right. I think you're right. There is a certain point where they shift from being or hell, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, that's true. Um, there's a certain point in the '70s where they shift from being the lovable hillbillies to um, the murderous hillbillies. Yeah, the, those crazy guys in the woods who will get you if you go out there. So don't do that, or them and their inbred cousins will grab you and make you squeal like a pig. <laughs> you, I I think you're right, and I about uh because you had people moving to the cities, and I think when you get to the '70s going into the '80s, like telecommunications is really taking off. And I don't think there were really mm-hmm. that many remote parts of the country anymore. Mm, true. And I think that's kind of what killed it off. Because when you get to the 80s, you stop having like the uh, the inbred mutant hillbillies, the villain. And mm-hmm. it's like the weird lost colony of mutant inbred, like, you know, the hills have eyes kind of thing. There it is, yeah. yeah. And I think it's because, again, you couldn't use like your standard you know, stereotypical country folk because there really weren't any at that time. Oh, there are still some around today, but there's not a lot of them anymore. Yeah, and and, and again, it's they're not unfamiliar because like you said, people were moving to the towns and mm-hmm. you had access to all these little, little communities. Like once cable happens, everybody's consuming pretty much the same entertainment, so. Exactly. But here's a quick question. Um, these hillbilly comics you're referring to, were they all comedies? Yes, they they were, and I think it's because, like you say, I think they were just straight up little Abner ripoffs. Okay, okay. But that plays into two other types of comics that were big in the Golden Age that are gone now. Okay, let's hear it. Because I'm going to go, the first one comes from from that idea of were they all comedies in a weird way, but I'm going to talk about mm-hmm. sports comics. Oh, Okay. That was a thing back in the golden age. We still did, we did sports comics. Right. And I, I think of that because you had, um, you had a comic that was fairly popular. It was Babe, which was little Abner if he was a woman. Okay. And that became Babe of the Ozarks where, because remember the country folk were all had their like mutant inbred strength. Right. And she became a baseball pitcher and it became like a, it became a sports comic. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because, and we've mentioned this before. Now, did it start that way? No, no, it didn't. It was like a little Abner ripoff, basically. And then it turned into a sports comic. Yeah, because it was the golden age and okay. nobody cared about continuity. And we had a few, one that everybody would probably right. know was Joe Palooka was a thing. Okay. He was a boxer. I think a lot of people. That's probably the the one you you know most I've heard readily of it. I've never read any myself, but I've heard of it. I think I've seen a few covers. Yeah, it was another one. It did the weird thing that a lot of them did. That it fluctuated between drama and comedy. Mm-hmm. Like it would be a straight up tune, and then they do a serious story, and then I think at one point he becomes like a spy or something like that. It, 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 it jumped, but it's mostly known as a boxing comic. Okay. Like a semi-comedic one. Right. Okay. So these sports comics, did they actually make an attempt to really portray like sporting events and teams and all that stuff? Ish. The, the comic books tended more towards like comedies. Mm-hmm. But there were newspaper strips as well, and they tended to be a little more serious. 
So I'm guessing the comic book versions were basically almost slice of life stuff about the lives of these uh, athletes. And there was a sports, the sports is what brought them together and was an element in the story at some point, but maybe just for a couple panels here and there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to kind of, kind of explain if you haven't been there because another type of comic book that kind of died off after the golden age was the anthology comic. Mm -hmm. They were never really after that. Once you get the silver age, they weren't super popular here. But in the golden age, so you would buy a comic mm. book and it would have like a chapter from like three or four different stories. And that meant you didn't, right. yeah, you didn't have a lot of time to tell your story. So they all kind of ended up getting all muddied in together. Right. Well, that was continuing even into the 60s, you'd see that. This is one of the reasons why if you, if you uh, like get the collection of the old uh, Iron Mans, for mm. example... I think there's one or two others that are like this. They're super short. They're only like eight pages a story. Yeah. When you, because they were paired with something else. I think I think it was part of Tales to Astonish or something along those lines. So yeah. they're paired with like two or three other other stories basically in each issue. Mm-hmm. They would just have a headliner. So anthologies were around for quite a while. I mean, I would argue they continued well into the 60s. Pro, and then after that, they became pretty rare. Yeah, they they kind of Americans. Yeah, they kind of die off in the mid '60s here. Everywhere else on Earth, that's the way you do a comic book. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's and it's interesting too if you look in other countries, like we've mentioned in Japan, mm-hmm. that sports comics and sports dramas were always popular. Still are. Yeah. And Britain was another place where they're, and I think they still are in Britain too. Not like they were, but yeah, they were big. Like, you go back to, like, the 60s and the 70s, sports comics in Britain were a big thing. Right. It's weird, though, isn't it, that, I mean, North Americans are so sports-obsessed, and yet sports comics are something that never really took off here. Yeah, that's one of those... I don't get that either, I gotta I gotta say. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is is that the audience that read comic books were generally not the people who would play sports or love sports. That's the only thing I could guess. Or maybe it's the reverse. The people who wrote comic books were almost all like nerdy types who didn't care about sports. So most of them didn't even think it was worth doing. I think you're right, but I think that comes, well, still fairly early on. I think that's a Silver Age thing, because I do think um, after the uh, 54 Senate subcommittee hearing, when comic books were seen as kids stuff, I think that was one of the things that, that getting at what you're saying, that that killed it off because it wasn't seen that kids wouldn't like drama. They wouldn't want a serious story. They want mm. things like magic powers and giant robots. They don't care about grounded down to earth things like sports. And I think, I think you're right. At least that's a guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also, I think, Sports comics have one other big problem, which is that, generally speaking, they take a while to tell. Like, to do a real sports comic and develop the team and everything like that, it takes a while to do that. You can't do that in eight pages. 
And even for sports to play out, I think sports playing out, the Japanese with their, you know, battle manga or sports manga or whatever, have kind of perfected the formula, but it took them a while to figure that out. And it only works with serialization where you've got these stories that are playing out over like 20, 30 chapters sometimes. Whereas in an American, like eight, 15, 20 page book. And remember back in those days, you pretty much had to do single issue stuff because you couldn't really do it, um... Sorry. Because you couldn't really rely on the audience being able to get the previous issue or even the one after it because of yeah. newsstands, right? Yeah, because I think you're right there too. Because the Brits would do these big, giant, epic sports dramas. And again, you're only getting like six to eight pages a week. Yes, but they were serials. Yeah, they were. And, and I think the, um, the Just British. Like the Japanese. Yeah, and I think the British system was more reliable. Because mm-hmm. a B- British comic books came out uh, just like newspapers. They look like little newspapers. I think they still mm-hmm. do. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think they were mm-hmm. distributed the same, so they're much more reliable. Whereas the, the comic books, especially in the Golden Age, there were so many fly-by-night companies and so much like graft and corruption and organized crime involvement and artists that just sort of stopped giving a shit fairly early on that. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think it's like you say, you could never depend on getting the next issue. Yep. It, it just wasn't a stable system. Yeah. Especially considering how big the United States was and you never knew how many issues the local store would, would own. You never knew how many issues the local mom and pop store would order and or if their distributor would have them or whatever. So, yeah. And also keep in mind that American comics, like most American things, were written with the idea that we want to be able to keep selling these things for as many months as possible. And the best way to do that is to make each issue one story or at least one story per issue and not have any continuity. Because if yeah. you do, suddenly people have to go back looking for other issues and maybe they want this month's, but they don't want the one from two months from now and whatever. Yeah. It, it makes things messy. And they were try- trying to keep it simple and clean and profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the attitude was that people were reading them just for a couple of cheap yucks. They weren't exactly that, yeah. that, that idea of really getting into them and worrying about continuity and story and that that didn't happen until the 80s, really. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay, and those are definitely three genres that we have kind of lost. I think anthologies keep trying to come back. I mean, thanks partly to the inspiration for the Japanese stuff. Marvel and DC, I think even the last decade or two, have tried to do anthologies a couple times, but they never last very long. They usually have a couple issues and then they're gone because they just don't sell. Yeah. The only anthology magazine that ever worked for comics... And even then, I get yeah, it is an anthology, and it's serialized as well for North Americans anyway. Was heavy metal? Yeah, and that's actually French, but it got okay. Well, it, there we go. It got translated here into English, and then, and again too, I think one of the reasons that that worked was because it wasn't a comic book; it was a magazine. Mm, true. Because Warren made a big go in the uh, in the seventies. They had a lot of anthology uh, comics too, but. They were magazines that were, they weren't comics and that was considered a different thing. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. That was why they switched to that because they didn't want people thinking they were comic books. Right. Hmm. Okay. So are there any other comic genres you think we've lost? Oh, sweet merciful fates. There are because I bet there are. 
your point about why the hillbilly comics died off, I think is also part of why another disturbingly popular genre died, and that was the jungle comics. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because, oh my god, there were so many of those as well. <laughs> I think, though, those go back again to the just a reflection of the Tarzan movies being popular back in the day. Yeah, and the pulps. They, they, the pulps were popular. And the pulps, yeah. Because they're yeah, all... there were a lot of jungle pulps, that's true. Yeah, 90% of them are Tarzan ripoffs, usually with, like, a, a chick in a bikini. Mm-hmm. They, they were so popular, I wish I could remember the characters. The jungle comics were so popular that what they started doing is slightly redrawing one character... And then publishing a whole other book with these essentially reprint stories that the character's just a little bit redrawn and calling it a different character and claiming it was a whole separate book. Wow. And it was just because the demand for these things was so high. And and like I say, it's it's funny when you look that there are so many of them because, again, that's been a dead genre for a long time. Right. Huh. Now, why would you think that the jungle genre got so popular back in its time? Uh, I think what made it popular is kind of what killed it, too. And this applies because movies and that had a lot of um, big game hunter movies and stuff that kind of die out in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because you've got an interest in that sort of thing. These far-off, mysterious lands... Remember that? It was darkest Africa because nobody knew it was in there. It was a mystery. And then, like, after Mm -hmm. World War II, when you get to the 50s going into the 60s, when when tourism and travel takes off, it's not mysterious anymore. So it's not weird, and we know that there's not, like, just random, like, jungle warriors that were abandoned as children and now can talk to the animals and have powers around, like, every, every tree. It just became kind of another place. And then... By the time you get to the 60s, interest kind of peters out. And that's that right. and that's part of what Okay, I can see that. Yeah, and that's part of what killed the hillbillies, that it wasn't weird and unfamiliar after a certain point, and then when it was common, nobody cared. Yeah. Okay. It loses its exoticness. That yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. So what's another genre that we've lost? Uh, sticking with the golden age, a big one that kind of disappears and takes a while to die was the romance comic. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it appeared, and as long as comics were for general audience, romance comics made sense, but as soon as they got kidified by the Senate subcommittee, I can see why romance comics kind of disappeared because adult women just weren't interested in reading them. Yeah, there was that. I think another mitigating factor was they generally always sucked. (laughs) Okay, there's that too. Because even in the golden age, you can tell they wanted to be like all crazy and steamy in that. Mm -hmm. But you could really only push things so much. Right. Oh, there's a question. Were there any EC romance comics? I believe there was. Yeah, because I keep thinking that they tried doing that. Because EC tried almost everything 
at one point. Yeah, and after they couldn't do the horror comics anymore. Yeah, they switched to weird shit. My favorite being psychoanalysis. <laughs> which was about a shrink treating people. Right. And then the weirdest part of that is that was not the only comic about a shrink treating people that came out around that time. <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah, there were there were actually more of them. <laughs> Cuz I it, mean, I if I if it may interrupt, hmm? I actually have read a few Japanese comics that are actually about that subject, some of which are actually really good. Mhm. But they weren't or should I say, they aren't <laughs> trying to be lurid. They're actually trying to be kind of uh, interesting dramas, basically. Yeah, and... Um, and yeah. The easy stuff is more lurid. <laughs> well, they they tried. They were, they, they were trying to do psychoanalysis. It had that same style of art, but it was supposed to be a drama. And it's... I've, I've only... I think there might have only been one or two issues. I've only seen some excerpts from one. And they're bizarre. Mm-hmm. They're just crazy bizarre. <laughs> no okay i could see that and as for the romance comics which you brought up earlier yeah i mean like i said i think women generally i mean i'm going to be stereotypical here for a sec but as far as we know women aren't as visually oriented as men so Mm -hmm. while women definitely can appreciate you know uh romance comics and such the japanese produce a ton of them i think that The Jap, I think that basically romance novels tend to work better for women than comics do. Basically, yeah. what I'm going to say, I think that they're there's, I mean, that's why they still are. Maybe I'm pretty sure the number one selling print genre on earth, and they still they have been for most of the last hundred years, probably longer than that. Mm. So, and I don't think the comics could compare, especially if you look at the crappy art most of them had. <laughs> well, that and like you were saying before, you've you've got the problem that for a romance comic or a, like a soap opera type story to work, you really have to put things in context. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that if I've got eight pages and then we're never going to see these characters again. Exactly. You can only work with the most base, crass, simple ideas yeah. and the archetypes, basically. And there's only so much you can do with that. Yeah. The only successful, I would argue, romance comic, if you can call it that, that actually ever ran and still exists, of course, is, of course, Archie. Yeah. It's... If you interpret that as a romance comic, which it kind of is at some points. Yeah, it it, it, it depends. Because the, the romance comics continued, like, I think, like, into the 80s. DC was still doing them, but most of them were reprints by that time. Hmm. In the 70s, Charlton was doing a whole slow to them, too. So they were still around. It's just, I don't know if anybody's actually reading them. Well, they must have. They wouldn't have kept printing them if someone wasn't buying them. Well, yeah, unless the haunted printing press in the uh, the back of the factory where that guy died one year is just randomly spitting them out. <laughs> yeah, but who's drawing them, dude? Yeah, it's, well, at that point, nobody. There are reprints. Oh, which, which is okay, good point. It's it's funny because even uh, Kirby did romance comics back in like the uh, the golden era. Kirby did everything. I, I know in his romance comics, some of them are pretty funny because it's definitely Jack Kirby artwork. 
Right. So you've, you've got these, like, big, super dramatic, super powerful, like, squared off, heavy light pictures in the book. And it's like, this is just weird. I don't know. Right. I don't know if this is good or terrifying, but it's definitely one of them. <laughs> I can only imagine what a Kirby <laughs> romance comic looks like. Um, wait, does Mister Kitty's uh, Comic Emporium or whatever it's called, oh, uh, Mister Kitty's Stupid Comics? There we go. Does he have any example of Kirby romance comics up there? I don't know if they have Kirby ones, but they have a whole section of romance comics. We'll have to link to. Yeah, we'll definitely have to do that. All right, so we should get moving on. So um, any other comic genres that you think are worth talking about that are gone or have faded through time? Yeah, we're kind of moving up the years. Um, Funny Animals kind of uh, made a one-two-three punch that kills them off, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And for anybody who doesn't know, Funny Animals would be like your Mickey Mouse, your Bugs Bunny kind of thing. Right. There were a lot of comics, like, back in, say, like, the, the, the Golden Age. Mm-hmm. You get to the Silver Age, you still had funny animal comics, but they were mostly tied. Yes, did. They were tie-ins, though. Like, nobody was really doing new ones. Disney was, wasn't, weren't, weren't they? I mean, well, Disney was doing, like, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge and that, like, way well into the 80s, at least. Yeah, and the Looney Tunes ones were being done, too, but nobody is making new characters. Oh, okay, that's, that's what, your point. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant to say, that everything coming out was a tie-in to, to something established. Right. And then the first blow I think they take was in the 70s with Howard the Duck. Mm-hmm. Because Howard the Duck was really popular, and he looked like a funny animal character, but he wasn't. It was a bitter, cynical, like, uh, commentary on society. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that was kind of the, the first shot to the funny animal. And then the second one was uh, Albedo. Because mm-hmm. Albedo was like, a, it had animal characters. Uh, Steve Galachi's style resembles a lot like the, the Don Bluth uh, kind of school of design. Mm-hmm. But he did these like super gritty, super realistic science fiction stories with, with these anthropomorphic characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that that took off and people kind of started seeing the animal characters like that. And then I think like the killing shot was Omaha. Yeah, I was waiting for you to say that. Yeah. Yeah, because we mentioned Omaha, the cat dancer. Yeah, because after that, every anthro comic was a sex comic for the longest time. Yep. Well, humans. Yep. Or not. Or not. Yeah. Okay, you got me there. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So, yeah, between those three, they showed that you could do more with funny animal comics than people were doing, and they became anthropomorphic comics, and it just goes from there. Yeah, and that's, like I say, I think that's what did them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of around the same era, another kind of comic book that sort of goes away was uh, movie adaptions. Oh, that's true. I, I mean, I'm not... Sure, you're not just referring to those like giant sized Marvel things where they would bring these gigantic I don't even know how to describe them to a modern audience. They're huge. Yeah. They'd make these huge books, comic books that were like oversized comics, but they were like three or four times the size of a normal comic. And yeah. They called them super special editions, and you would find them everywhere after a popular movie came out during the nineteen eighties. 
Yeah, they they did those. I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of them were called uh, the super specials, like you said, or they were mm-hmm. called treasury editions. Okay. And I think they did that because again, it was a different format, and you get them into bookstores and magazine stores. Yeah, I think that was the idea. Yeah, but that was part of it. But then they also did regular comic versions of them, and what they'd often do is they'd do like a two or three part comic of the mm-hmm. movie, and then it would come out in that oversized thing that they'd kind of tweak the pages a bit and add some or subtract some to put it all in one big story. Right. Because there was, there was a bunch. That kind of starts back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It might even go earlier. That there, Dell did a lot of movie adaptions. Right. Uh, Charlton did a bunch. I've got like, uh, shoot, I think it was Charlton did uh, Gorgo. Yeah, I was going to mention Gorgo. I, I have a copy of that somewhere, somewhere in my collection. Yeah, and, and and I think they also did Reptilicus, that they did... They did. ...the movie, and then the stories continued for a few more issues. Yes, yep, you're right. Um, they also did, there's a Conga comic, I believe, mm-hmm. and they, they, they did a bunch of the monster comics for some reason, but, you know, monsters were popular at that point, and so they're like, okay, well, we'll do giant monster comic adaptations, because so, why not? Yeah, that and Dell did, uh, like, Dracula and got away with it, mm-hmm. like, years earlier. Because remember, after the comics code, you couldn't have monsters in your comic. Well, you could if they were so unrealistic, uh, no, like, you, for example, giant monsters. That came later. Okay. Uh, that that was, again, like, when you get near the end of the 60s, they started cribbing it. But no, originally, you could not have monsters, but Dell wasn't part of the comics code. They were oh. they were big enough. They told them to piss off. Now they had their own. It was a I forget what it's called. It was like um, the Dell pledge to parents, right? That they wouldn't publish stuff that would like damage your child. And that was on the inside cover of all their books. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they weren't limited by the code, and, and they did Dracula. I think they did a couple other ones that that were uh, adaptions. And again, once they got away with it, the other companies would kind of start fudging their way in, so that. It got to the point you could do unrealistic ones. I think shortly after Dell did Dracula, they added the clause that you could do monsters if you did them in the tradition of the literary classics, was how they put it. Uh-huh. Okay, sure, buddy. Yeah, and you could, you could do that, because remember, the comics code was self-enforced. Mm-hmm. So the other companies, any time, you could just say, no, piss off, don't care. Or you could all get together and go, oh my god, that sold me a lot of money, let's do that. You know? Right. Which, not true, is what they did eventually. Yeah. And then, like... It makes sense. Yeah, and and that was... The movie adaptions were big. They did tons of them. They did... uh, You mentioned that they did, like, Donald Duck and that. That that was... um, That was... Mm -hmm. I think that was Dell, and then it was Gold Key. Got the rights. There's a big... There's a big kind of weird overlap with... with, uh, There's an article we can put up about it. About the Gold Key Disney... Dell thing mm-hmm. about how that that all comes about, but they were doing movie adaptions of the Disney films and stuff. Okay, and then when you get kind of the middle of the eighties, that all stops. And why do you think that happened? Oh, this one's obvious. I think it's because of VCRs. Oh, okay, makes sense. That the only way I could relive a movie until VCRs was to go see it, or if I had like the the novel or the comic book. Uh, this is also why I think like the movie cards went away around the same time, mm-hmm. 
because right. we, we didn't need them. We, we could just watch the movie again and again and again. Right. And of course, it was shown on TV occasionally, maybe once a year, if you were lucky to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, you're right. That that does make sense. Why a lot a lot of these things were just mnemonics for the movie, and we didn't need them anymore. So therefore, gone. Yep. Uh, looking at my list around that same time too. When you get to the '80s, another kind of comic book that goes away are kids' comics. That's an odd statement. I, I assume you mean things like what uh, Little Aubrey and Richie Rich and that kind of thing. Yeah, like your Harveys, your uh, mm-hmm. the the who who little Harveys that was Harvey too. The Harveys. It was Harvey. Yeah. Oh, there was another company that did them that went away. Um, there were there were there were a few. There were a few ones that did like Charlton. I think by that time was doing like either superheroes or kids stuff. Mm. Archie, I think, did have some kids comics as well. Yeah, Arch Archie. Did, Archie's kind of considered like a kid's comic just because it's pretty, it used to be pretty inoffensive. Right. Um, everybody sort of tried doing their kiddie stuff. Like DC did a couple. Marvel had Star Comics, which was. Yep, they did. Their kids' line, which that was probably at the time the ones that did the best. Mm-hmm. But they did a lot of tie ins. Like this was also the era of the 1980s half hour toy ad cartoon. By the way. I should just note for those listening who are younger, um, the character of Spider-Ham, the pig Spider-Man, the cartoon one that you see in Into the Spider-Verse, that's from those Marvel Star comics. Actually, technically, yes, but he first appeared in Marvel Tale, spelled T-A-I-L-S, which came out before Star Comics. Okay, okay, well, okay, I've been schooled. Kind of, because he got a regular series when Star came about. Right. Because the first run of Star Comics were mostly Harvey ripoffs. Right. And then they did their own, like, they, they did their own versions, usually with the guys who did the art and the writing for Harvey Comics. Mm-hmm. And then they did a lot of their tie-ins, because they did a Care Bears one, they did a Thundercats one. I remember it mostly being tie-ins. Yeah. The first run of it wasn't, because that was they had Royal Roy, which was hardly Richie Rich at all. Uh-huh. And uh what was it? Uh Wally the Wizard was one. Uh Planet Terry was was a, was another one that they did. They had mm-hmm. Heath Heathcliff was the first run that was a tie-in cuz the the cartoon was on. Right, yes. It was a newspaper strip. The cartoon was fairly popular. So they did a comic. There was a couple more and then again it when it got a couple years later, it was all cuz that was they did the Care Bears, the ThunderCats. They did I don't know why, but Air Raiders. Again, tie-ins. Yeah, they also did a tie-in. Oh, shoot. It was like a cyborg animal robot car thing. I can't remember what it was called. It was a tie-in for a a toy series and a cartoon that never happened. Okay. That the rest rest of it got cancelled, but they put the comic out anyway for a few issues because they'd already done them. Yeah, the original set were Misty, Peter Porker, the Spectacular Spider-Ham, Planetary, Royal Roy, Top Dog, and Wally the Wizard. Top Dog, that right. was the other one, yeah. Nah, that, there we go. They don't, mention, um, they don't mention Heathcliff. I thought he was one of... Yeah, Heathcliff was in there too. Heathcliff was one of the very Heathcliff first did, Well, he's listed as a licensed title. Yeah. 
But yeah, that was but not as one, not one of the originals. Yeah. What are you referring to? Um... I'm looking at the list. The popples they did. Silver Hawks for Fraggle Rock. Yeah. Um Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. Yeah. Yeah, they were just they were just <laughs> doing that thing. Animax, that's the one. Animax. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, Animax was was the one it was supposed to be a uh Mm-hmm. Uh because it was it Mike Brickerant that did the toys. I don't know what Animax is, and they don't even have a Wikipedia entry for Animax. Yeah, it, it, it's so obscure. Yeah, that was that was the one. It was supposed to be a toy line and a TV show, but it never came to be. Right. But they put the comic out anyway because, like I said, it was it was already done. Right. Yeah. If you go up, look up Animax, folks, what you'll find is it's an actual uh, anime uh, cable channel called Animax. Yeah, that's that's that, that came later. You won't find the toys. Actually, maybe if I put in toys. Animax toys. Oh, yeah, here we go. I did find them. And, yeah, they look weird. Yep. Yeah, they're a little... Yeah. Wow, they they look a lot <laughs> like visionaries. Yeah, they kind of are. They're kind of out of that same uh, unholy it's, alliance. It's like vision, 1.0 visionaries in a weird way or something like that. Yeah, but they're like... Yeah, the same types of vehicles, everything like that. I wouldn't be surprised if they were designed by the same guys. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Let's see. They were created by Mel. Let's take a look at this. Is that Brickerin? Mel Burncrant. That's him. Yep. Mel Burncrant. Okay. On his uh, on his website, he has a whole whole big thing about it. Mel Burncrant. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Where they, That's where all these images are coming from. Weird. Because he actually did prototypes for the toys, and it was it, it it prototypes for all the bad guys and everything that's supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty spectacular, but but again, it it didn't. Because that was near the end of the 80s where the bottom kind of fell out of all of that. Hmm. That is so weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. Well, again, you could only make so much money with uh, the toy tie-ins. Yep. But now I am so curious. Did (laughs) you create anything else? Or I guess this is just about his, this is just his Animax site. Yeah, Mel Brickford? Oh my yeah. god, he designed like a billion things. Uh, well, we'll link to his site. He does a site where he talks about the, the toys he designed. Because he's the uh, guy who did the uh, Color Forms Outer Space Men. Oh, okay. And he, his site has all kinds of different stuff he was working on. He had one series that looked really good was about like aliens invading the Earth. That would be Invasion Earth. <laughs> These weird... There we go. It, those are bizarre looking things. Yeah. Uh, Galaxy Gladiators, Man Machines. I vaguely remember some of these things. Max FX. Oh, okay, yeah, that definitely remember that. Um, the Outer Spacemen. Yep. They look like it looks like a collection of Ultraman monsters. Yeah, kind of. What what the idea is? There's supposed to be one for every planet in the solar system. Oh, I see. And they made them for um. There were. Mattel had Major Matt Mason, mm-hmm. America's first man into space, which was their realistic astronauts, outer space kind of stuff. Right. Because in the 50s and 60s, that was a big deal. And they wanted to capitalize on that because Matt Mason didn't mm-hmm. really have villains. 
Right. They introduced a couple aliens later on. One was a bad guy. But originally it was just supposed to be realistic, like, space toys. And Color Forms thought, we can make the bad guys for this. They won't officially be the villains, but they'll be kind of the same scale and the same kind of toy, so they don't look out of place. And they came up with one for every, like, every planet and solar system. And they're fantastic. They they, they got brought back a few years ago as three and a half inch figures. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they, they, they added more and they, they came out, they were really popular. And then they actually put a man on the moon and discovered there were no aliens up there. And overnight, everybody lost interest in outer space and the toy line kind of flatlined and they moved on to color forms. <laughs> right. <coughs> actually, if you want to see something incredibly cool looking, did you look at spaceship arc? Yeah. Oh my god, those designs. They're so um, 80s. But but oh my god, that is so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I'll link to it in the show notes. Spaceship. A, uh, sorry, Starship A-R-C. Yeah. what it's called. It's... I, I can't explain this. You'd really just have <laughs> to... Um, you'd really have to... Let's see. Uh, Captain Noah Darwin, commander of the Starship Ark... Animal Rescue Command is what ARC stands for. Sets forth on his epic voyage that takes him from the ends of the Earth to the farthest reaches of the galaxy. His mission is to visit this and, and other planets to rescue two of each endangered species and transport them to the safety of New Eden, a virgin planet much like Earth millions of years ago where life may be born anew and each endangered species can multiply and prosper. But it's a toy line like he has these weird powered armors, this guy that are basically like animal style powered armors, except mm-hmm. some of them like they look like they're probably modular. So you could actually do different things with them. Um, his buddy is like a dolphin with an exo with a powered armor. And yeah. then my favorite is Big Feet, the awesome Bigfoot warrior who looks like a Bigfoot <laughs> in a Star Wars Stormtrooper costume. Basically Chewbacca, <laughs> right? Uh, but... And Rex Courage, the like the just the art. No, oh my God, Starship! And then there's a panda, and oh, oh anyway, <laughs> I I can kind of see why nobody actually made this, but it's still freaking cool to look at, right? <laughs> In a terrific sort of way. So Starship A R C, okay, or Arc. So yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes. Hmm. And the bad guys are just horrific. Yeah, literally horrific. Anyway, we should probably go on with something else. I, I, I'm going to be I, I'm going to be here for a while. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> yeah, I think we're almost at the end of comic books. Okay. Oh my god, I don't want comic books to end. <laughs> All right. So what's the last comic book genre you want to bring up? Well, there's three. Two go by really. Okay. Qu- there's three more. Okay. We're not quite done yet, folks. Yeah, two go by really quick because mm-hmm. gag comics kind of die out and Archie ripoffs kind of die out. True. Okay. Yep. That's true for both of them. And I mm-hmm. and I think that's because again, when you get to the '80s, comics become like serious and and literature and they're not just for kids, yeah, kind of thing. Right. Well, Archie ripoffs die out, but Archie's still around. Yeah, Archie and does. Ar- Archie's are still largely gag comics. They are, but they're kind of the only one. And even then, that's modern true. modern Archie, the ones that are taking off are like their horror comics and their soap operas. They're not. The the little digests are still gag comics and like eighty percent reprints, but gag comics in general that used to be a big thing, and 
it yeah that kind of stops in the 80s mm-hmm. uh i mentioned archie ripoff specifically because if you go back to like the golden age and the silver age mm-hmm. holy crap there are so many of them mm-hmm. again there's a uh uh stupid comics did a four-part article called i can't believe it's not archie where they they talk about <laughs> right. some of the different ones <laughs> and and because that's how I knew we mentioned yeah we mentioned before that Wilbur essentially predates Archie Mm -hmm. and that was where I found that out and I'm like really I looked it up the the irony being that the earliest Archie were very different from later Archie right but Wilbur was very similar to what everybody now thinks of as Archie so Archie ripped off Wilbur in the end Maybe, or I think it's just that all the same people ended up working on, like, every Archie ripoff, pretty much, and they just get... I can't tell them apart anymore! Good lord. Well, as long as they're selling, just keep cranking them out. Yeah, Dan DiCarlo did, like, 80% of them himself. I don't know how he kept it all straight, but... Wow. Okay, sure. Why not? But yeah, there were so... So I can't stress how many there were. It was like an industry unto itself. Mm Mm-hmm. And and they weren't even some of them weren't even pretending. But then again, Archie kind of drew from from earlier entertainment from like radio and that, right? Like the Ozzy and Harriet and uh, what was what was the other one? That was uh, the one with Wilbur Crab. Why can't I remember the name of that? But there was a bunch because they even did um, uh, Corliss Archer. Mm-hmm. Is basically an Archie ripoff, and she originally. St- was in was done in radio plays. Oh, okay. As I recall, and then that became a cop. There were a few that made that jump, and they were all basically it's everything was Archie. It was, it was horrifying. Um, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I know this because that's one of the things I have a weird fixation for is Archie clones. Yep, and we'll probably do a whole show on Archie at some point right. in the future. And and then. Uh, mm-hmm. to wrap What's the final one, Don. The final one, and this is going to sound weird, because there's a genre of comic book that was incredibly prolific, and then just sort of disappears in the early two thousands. Okay, and it is that was essentially porn comics, or erotic uh, comics, depending on whether you had a writer or not. I wouldn't say they disappear; they simply go online. And that's that's one of the things I'm go- I'm gonna I'm gonna say that yeah essentially you're right. I think two things killed uh, porn comics the uh-huh. ones that were coming out in the 90s and 80s etc. Um, and the two things are um, uh, manga to be on it to be porn manga basically um, hentai etchi whatever you want to call it that um, that started to be produced in great amounts they could just bring it over like you know. Put, switch switch it to English and flip it and re, and print it out in collections and people would buy it like crazy, um, and then eventually of course that started appearing online too and then yeah the internet and sites started to pop up and I know just having been around the internet that there there are definitely sites uh, online that that's their claim to fame is they're basically just porn comic sites yeah but it's 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 weird to note that if you remember the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you weren't doing like a, a Jim Lee ripoff superhero, you were doing a porn comic like that. That's yeah, yeah. For for a while, that was just how it was, and then like I say, all of a sudden they vanish. Again, just 
a certain point, I think they stopped selling because people were too busy getting their uh, enjoyment online. Yeah, and, and I think, too, what you saw then was when you get to near the end of the 90s, you have a big change in the audience. Yes, that's true, too. That you were either a super hardcore superhero fan and didn't care about anything mm -hmm. else, or you were a kid who didn't care about comic books. Comic books were stupid. Manga was awesome. Yep, that's true. And I think I think that's kind of uh, kind of why that it, it didn't exactly go away. It went online because everything does. Mm -hmm. But that was why, like, if you go to a comic shop now, nobody's really doing porn. Or I, I use the term erotic because there's a lot of stuff like that came. A lot of it came out of Europe, right? That it was an actual story that had a sex scene in it, right? And that was something different. But even that, you don't really see so much anymore. Well, again, in a certain point in the 90s, okay, before a certain point in the 90s, let me rephrase, before a certain point in the 90s, you, if you wanted to read, you know, pornographic comics, you had to buy comic books. Yeah. Like, there just wasn't another option. And in fact, let's be honest, you had, or you had to buy pornographic magazines as well. I mean, that, you know, that, that's how it was back in those days, or pornographic, you know, video cassettes, I guess, whatever, you mm -hmm. know, but you had to pay for your porn. Yeah. But there's a certain point where unlimited free porn pops up. And that pretty much puts the end to that. Yeah. Because there just isn't any money in it anymore. Yeah. So if you had a paying audience, it was okay. But not a, not one where you're competing with free. Yeah. That's kind of hard hard battle to win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I suspect that's not the only thing that's died because of uh, free on the internet. Or at least somewhat free. Depending. Right. Although, actually, I think, I, again, I'm not, this is not really my area. And I'm not saying that because I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's not my area. I don't really go into this. No, it really isn't my area. Um, but I do know, again, just from wandering around the internet, that I've come across a couple sites that are actually subscription sites, which are basically just filled with porn comics. But you have to you know, pay for them because they're actually producing original porn comics on them. Mm-hmm. I can't link to them in the show notes, literally because I don't know what they're called, but and I can't even tell you, but I do know that they're there. Right. So, and of course, you can find pirate sites with lots of free stuff as well, because it's the internet. But the, I guess my point is, is that um, there is some effort to try to make money from these things once again and produce original content and such. I imagine most of it sucks because, you know, it usually does, but but there's at least some attempt going on anyway. Yeah. People are still producing actual porn comics and pornographic stories. But once again, there's so much Japanese stuff coming out. I mean, it's hard to compete for the Americans. Yeah. Um, but never fear. People will always draw, you know, dirty pictures because that's <laughs> human nature. Well, yeah. That's... <laughs> All right. So we better get moving on then um, to another genre. Let's go with uh, music or film. Which one would you prefer to do next? I think film. Okay, film's probably a good a good segue. So, um, are we going to go back to the golden age? Yeah, we are, because one of the things that started this off is a subgenre that kind of went away, and I, I didn't realize this until, again, that cracked uh, podcast mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Westerns aren't as prevalent as they were. They, they, they still come around, but they used to be like the thing. Just kind of like superhero movies are right now. Yeah, and and exactly. Oh yeah, exactly. And and one of the weird subgenres was the singing cowboy. 
Oh, uh, Gene Autry. Yeah, or Roy Rogers, or any... Or Roy Rogers, yep, that's true. Any one of them, like, they all sang. The, 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 the earliest, like, films in that, half of them, even, like, the dramas, featured singing cowboys. That's true, they did. I hadn't thought about that. Of course, mind you, a lot of films from that period, especially more general audience films, often did actually try to slip in a singing number of some kind. Just yeah. Just again, for entertainment's value. Yeah, that there, there was this idea that you didn't target an audience. You kind of crammed everything you could into your film to draw people to the theater. Exactly. Huh. But you're right. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're true. You're right. We, no, no, do we not make Westerns really anymore? We definitely do not make singing cowboy Westerns Mm -hmm. or, or have films where the characters just randomly break out in song. The only time that will happen or would is generally speaking, romantic comedies. Yeah, or musicals, or, but we don't make music. Well, I mean, I don't count musicals, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> Nobody does, but we because that's another one we don't make. Uh, we don't really make musicals anymore. You say that, but we do. But they're all animated. Yeah, because again, it's it's the the old Disney template, and it's considered kid stuff. We do make musicals, I but. Again, if you go back to see the fifties or the sixties, mm-hmm. these things were prolific. Yeah, yeah, they were pretty much everywhere. That's true. And there were so many of them. And again, that was the kind of thing that uh, it shows a weird—I can't put my finger on it—change in taste. Mm-hmm. That that all sort of goes away. So we we've had a few musicals that that um, came out recently. There was The Greatest Showman that came out. Yeah, they did uh, Les Mis, they did as a musical a few years back. Yep. They did... Uh, Both of which star Hugh Jackman. Who, who can't sing. Uh, <laughs> they did Mamma Mia. Yeah, it's uh, true. Another Mamma Mia just came out, yeah. And and what was the one that, that pissed everybody off because it was about white people developing like jazz? Oh. Why well, I can't... Uh. I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the name. Yeah, something land. I can't remember. It wasn't. It wasn't so planned. Oh, what was it called? I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah that. And so every year you get like one or two musicals. Yeah, yeah, they still pop up because people still they do love musicals. I mean, you do see them, and sometimes like. Sometimes they actually still win awards and people, I mean, there isn't, there's an appetite for them, but I think the audience is largely older folk. Yeah. Like older folk are again, like a lot of kids movies will still be musicals. Yes, that's true. Uh, musicals will still play. I mean, well, Frozen, right? Or yeah. Frozen 2 just came out. Um, and so, yeah, okay. I could see that. Again, I think it's just a case of, changing tastes i mean people people want more dramatic stuff you could make a very good argument that actually musicals were killed off by old hall musicals were killed off by the new hollywood era of the 19 late 60s early 70s right because at that point uh was it is cinema verite basically takes over where basically everything suddenly has to be realistic and musicals are the ultimate example of unrealistic yeah and so it's no longer – it's musicals suddenly become too cheesy, too um, unrealistic for audiences to accept for a while there. 
and they take a little while to actually kind of sneak back in, we can still accept it in the form of an animated film because, you know, that's a kid's thing and that's fine. But yeah. adult musicals kind of disappear for a while there. I mean, there's a few. I mean, I think there's a movie version of Jesus Christ Superstar, isn't there? Yeah, but again, that's going back to the 70s. Well, no, but that was actually the new Hollywood era when that came out, right? Yeah. But it was so popular as a stage play, I believe, and everything first that there's like, okay, well, we'll make this. And that still happens where you get like Chicago, for example. You get stage play musicals that come out. Yeah. And God help us, there's, of course, Cats coming out. Yeah. Eek. That, that's <laughs> probably one that they should have skipped from the look of things. But Uncanny Valley Incarnate. But okay, sure. Good luck, guys. Um... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Shudder. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right. Musicals are generally something that we've uh, lost. Although maybe they'll come back in fashion to some degree. I don't think so, though, because, again, it costs just so much money to make a film now and distribute it mm-hmm. that musicals are just too much of a gamble. Unless, again, it's some, like, super ultra-popular Broadway show that you're turning into a musical. Like, there must be a Hamilton musical on the way because people just lost their shit for Hamilton a few years back. So, like, there must be a musical somewhere. Um, But generally speaking, unless it's a proven thing, they don't make musicals except animation. Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's also um, getting to your idea of... uh like when Cinema Verite takes over, we've really kind of, when once you get to the 90s, we've managed to uh, to really kind of divide and conquer the audience. Mm-hmm. That we got really good at marketing stuff, and to market it, we got really good of like pigeonholing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be part of it too, that if you look to the 50s and the 60s, they did like comedy musicals, dramatic musicals, like action musicals god help us all i'm looking at you paint your wagon but Mm -hmm. and then that kind of goes away because we chop down all the different genres into like their essentials and then we just that's what you're going to get when you watch this kind of film yeah pretty much that musicals become their own thing which is either uh musical comedy or disney films yeah, I can't really think of any others. I mean, obviously other cultures like India still do lots of them, but yeah. um, it's pretty rare. Well, here, yeah, here, it, here it is. Like I say, you get one or two a year. Yeah, yeah. I I think yeah they the I can they're a good general appeal, but that's about it. Yeah. Okay. All right, then. So what are we going to talk about next? What's the next uh, film genre that's disappeared? There's, there's, there's a couple. One that kind of went away, and it, it, it was really prolific during, like, the 60s, and then it, it mm-hmm. kind of comes back in the 80s and it goes away, was uh, the old Sword and Sandal film. Oh, interesting. You're right. Um, we don't seem to make those anymore. Sword and Sandals, Yeah. I mean, you could make an argument that those kind of got killed off by Gladiator. But I think probably they were dead even before then. Yeah, they, they were. We got a... They were popular in, like, the 60s. hmm And then they kind of peter out. You get a couple, like, uh, the original uh, Clash of the Titans is almost a Sword and Sandals film. 
True. Like, like if you've ever seen one, and anybody out there has never seen one, we'll have to put a link to like a like a Hercules film because there's kind of a certain look and a certain feel to them. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're sword and sorcery, but they're not like Tolkien esque sword and sorcery. They're basically Greco Roman sword and sorcery is what they are. Yeah, and even when they're not, they are like yeah, because there were again in in the sixties especially there were tons of them. They kind of come back in the early 80s because when you get the uh, the fantasy... I was going to say Arnie starred in one. I think Arnie's been in, in, in a couple. Cause... I thought he only did one. And they dubbed him over because they they thought no one could understand him. Well, they, they did a few because I'm going to say that uh, when you get to the early 80s, the, the big budget Conan film, mm-hmm. oh, har- yeah. Har- yeah. that harkens back to the old sword and sandals. And I think that coming out in the fantasy boom, you got a lot of them, especially like right to video. True. You got a bunch of them. And then once the uh, the 80s kind of start wrapping up, they all just kind of disappear again. Mm-hmm. But I think, yep. that, I think that's because people are getting more into like the D&D, um, Lord of the Rings kind of like fantasy. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Mm-hmm. Fantasy actually really did mean something different pre-Tolkien, pre-D&D. Yeah. Yeah, well... Yeah, that's true, huh? Yeah, because that was the thing, like, the the old Sword and Sandals flicks are basically caveman superhero movies. Yeah. That's the easiest way to describe them. Kind of. Yeah, I guess that kind of works. Yeah. And like I say, they were were big because all you had to do was, like, ship a film crew and a muscle guy to, like, somewhere in Rome and... You're off and running. Like, that was that was how they made these things. Yeah, yeah. They would literally just use the Roman ruins or, you know, whatever. The the, the uh, ruins is probably not quite the right word. Um, the um, Some of it would be ruins. They'd film it like the, the Parthenon. Yeah, some, some of them are ruins. But I'm just trying to think the uh, the classical structures. There we go. Yeah. The classical Roman, the Roman uh, structures. And, uh, yeah, they would uh, just, you know, have they'd fight that was a that was a thing that they did right it was a cheap way to make movies yeah you'd film them in europe or whatever and i think probably a lot of the sword and sandals films were probably done like that i think maybe they were also a little bit of a spin-off of remember in the 60s bible films were super popular yeah and those were big budget and so this was kind of a low budget way to kind of capitalize on this it's like oh well everyone understands the idea of like these you know, these desert dwellers and there's these guys fighting and such and there's Romans in some of those, you know, films. And so it's like, okay, people understand this. Let's just go with that. <laughs> yeah, because if you, if you watch any of them, they're, 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 they're the sword and sandal ones. There's no attempt at historical accuracy. Oh, no, no, of course not. Yeah, why, why is that like 800 BC Greek guy hanging out with the 12th century Chinese dude? Well, just because it looks like ancient and throw it in we'll sort it out later right my god you're right because for example there are many there are numerous series of uh-huh. these things like for example i'm just looking at the wikipedia entry there are 19 hercules movies <laughs> at least <laughs> that, well they start in 58 with uh, hercules with steve reeves yeah and they finish it with hercules the avenger also as challenge of the giants with reg park as hercules in 1965 um, 
Oh, and sorry, no, I apologize. Then there were a couple uh, English-dubbed Italian films that pretended to be ones like Hercules Against the Moon Men, Hercules and the Back and the Black Pirate, and mm. Hercules and the Treasure of the Incas. And Son of Hercules, which has nothing to do with Hercules at all. Hercules and the Masked Rider. Oh, I guess he went to Japan. Um, <laughs> right like three, Stooges, <laughs> three Sturges made Hercules because it was so popular. They even did spinoffs and such. Yeah. Um, there's the Goliath films. Yeah. By the way, almost all of these are made in Italy. These are pretty yeah. much all Italian films that that they're either dubbed and then they dub them in English, or maybe the actor actually spoke English and everyone else spoke Italian or whatever. Yeah. Um, get, for example, uh, Terror of the Barbarians, Goliath Against the Giants, Goliath and the Rebel Slave, Goliath and the Mast Rider. Well, that oh also known as Hercules and the Mast Rider. Well, that explains that. Yeah. Um, a Goliath lot of them... at the Conquest of Baghdad. Yeah, a, a lot of also them. Also was... Goliath at the Conquest of Damascus. Yeah, they have like 50 different names because, again, this was, was the, the era of like the, the independent theater and you just go on the weekend and watch whatever is showing. So they'd swap the names out or they'd swap them out for syndication so you think you're watching something different on TV when they rerun it and stuff. Yep, yep. Another popular series was the, I don't know how to pronounce this, M-A-C-I-S-T-E. Oh! East. Oh, it's... Like it's Italian, so I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to pronounce it's this. Like thing. It's like it's, it's Massite. 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 Something no. like that. Massiste. Ma- ma- machiste. Oh, it's Machiste, because remember the C-I in Italian is pronounced as C-H. Yeah. So C-H-I is pronounced as, yeah, it's, it's Machiste. Okay. And there are 25 of these. <laughs> there are 20, again, all Italian. That's where, that's where, it, there are 25 proper ones, and a lot of them got redubbed as Hercules films. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the Urus series. Is this one actually also still Italian? Yeah. Okay. Um, and of these, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of these. There's the Samson series. Uh, looks like there's another like five or six of those. The Son of Hercules series. Yeah. Which ha- which is fourteen films. Um, this there's uh the Steve Reeves films, which oh actually those are. That's it. He's a popular American actor who yeah. appeared in a bunch of these. Yeah. Um, these are also known as PEPLA films, apparently. Mm. I don't know what PEPLA stands for. Oh, and then there's the other non-series Italian sword and sandal PEPLA films. That, oh, my dear God. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple just, of them. Oh, my dear God. And then they get the Gladiator films, mm-hmm. which are... Oh my god! I'll link to this Wikipedia entry, folks. Your jaw will just—this thing just goes on forever. Holy crap! They made this many, and people. Oh my god! I—I I had no idea. I knew a few of these existed, but—and you're right, dude. And they—you know what's interesting is they—they they generally disappear after the mid 1960s. Yeah. There's a few that pop up later on, but they generally disappear after the mid 60s. Yep. And and they just go away. There's there's a bunch of different genres like that. Um, one thing that we didn't get a lot of here, we got a couple of them back in the day, but a genre of movie out of Mexico that that was disturbingly huge and then kind of faded was the uh, the luchador films. Right. Yeah. About the masked wrestler, which again they're kind of a variation of the whole superhero film, but yeah, yeah they're they're a little different. And and there was a billion of them. But mm-hmm. we got a couple here. They usually got chopped up really weird. Right. But again, in, in Mexico, there were just hundreds of these things. 
And it was its, mm-hmm. it was its own thing. It had its own style. It had its own. They're all the same. They're all kind of villain shows up. Wrestle. It'd be like if you took like the WWE and then you did like a a series of like I don't know who's in the WWE now, but like if you mm-hmm. gave like uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper a series of movies and then it would just be that character of Rowdy Roddy Piper showing up. Then one day he's fighting aliens and then you do a movie where he's a super spy and then in one he's trying to catch like the phantom that's trying to shut down the big show at the, and you just keep doing this and you throw in like a 20 minute scene of him driving around in a sports car for some reason. That was what all these mm-hmm. things were. And like right. I say, we got a couple here enough that if you're uh, an old school B movie fan, you've seen a few. Mm-hmm. But when you went to Mexico, these were nuts. There was just so many of them. Right. I think if also if you lived in the border, like, you know, New Mexico or Los, um, Los Angeles, California, uh, you they seem to get a lot of them too. Like it's been interesting for us being Canadians. We see a lot of this stuff coming, you know, parodies of luchador stuff in cartoons and other American stuff coming again from California, but it doesn't mean anything to us. To us, it's just a weird curiosity for the most part. Yeah. Because we didn't get them. Like we really didn't, we didn't see any of these. At least I never saw any growing up. I, and I was even watching like all the B movie channels, like a fanatic and never saw any like, and again, these are from the Northern States. So we're getting the stuff out of Ohio, mostly in Michigan, yeah. but they weren't showing these things either. Hmm. Um, did you see any growing up, Don? What the Luchador films? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, tons. They, they... Okay, you must have been watching something different than I was. Yeah, because we'd get them. They'd usually on like really late, late, late at night because a lot of them were Z grade. Oh yeah, I believe it. And we used to get the Spanish channel. Well, a Spanish channel. That's I, why I don't know what the hell Spanish channel it was. But remember, we sent Ed up on the roof to screw up the antenna. We got all kinds of crazy shit here. Right, but we couldn't get them here. Yeah. We didn't have that Spanish channel, so of course we wouldn't see it. Yeah. Not not in London, Ontario anyway. In Windsor, you could get it because you were probably getting Spanish TV out of, out of, I assume, Detroit, which is across the river. Yeah, I, I don't know where. this the, it, was, it was like Channel 66. I, I don't know where it came out of. Okay, well, we should probably find out. Hmm. Let's find out. Um, oh, there it is. It's uh, probably, you were probably actually watching an early version of Univision. Channel 66. Uh, oh, no, wait. This is UHF cha- Digital Channel 35. Okay. That's from Chicago. It might have been, that, uh, that might have been where it came. We get a lot of stuff from. Uh... When did this start? It, uh, it ran starting in like, it looks like 81. History that might have been it. Um, Chicago would make sense if you're going up on the roof, yeah, looking for this thing. Well, we got a um, lot of stuff from Chicago, depending on the weather, yeah, because there's another channel here that's the Nuts Valero, California. There's no way you're getting that. Um, yeah, that's probably, I bet it's Chicago, yeah, I bet that was it was probably the Chicago because Chicago is like what about two, three hours away by car from, from Windsor. Yeah, probably closer to three, depending on the uh, on the traffic. So yeah, depending on that, so that actually would make perfect sense. Yeah, I could totally see you being able to get a signal again. It wouldn't. That explains why you had to send Ed up on the roof because it wouldn't be strong enough if it was coming right out of Detroit. It would be perfectly strong. There'd be no problems. Yeah. 
But if it's coming out of Chicago, yeah, you would get it intermittently. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and we definitely could not get it here. I had no Spanish. The only Spanish that I heard growing up, um, besides obviously occasional movies or television, was on Sesame Street. That's the only reason I know how to count in Spanish is Sesame Street. Because, again, we used to watch the American Sesame Street and the Canadian Sesame Street. Which yeah. the Canadian one has all that stuff in French. The American one had it all in Spanish. That's true. And that's how I learned my Spanish. That's why I know <laughs> water is agua. <laughs> Uno, dos, tres. That's how I learned I learned it from, there was some song on Sesame Street. That, that's mm. how I learned all my Spanish. Right. Um, anyway. Whatever. Um, so, okay, Sword and Sandals, which, wow, it's just astounding. I, you know, I, I it's one of those things where I may actually have to go back and try watching some of these things just out of just pure masochistic curiosity. Yeah, Rift Tracks has a bunch of them. That would be my recommended way. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think I will probably oh, – well, wait, there must be some on MST3K, right? Yeah, I think they did a couple they, – they did a couple because they, they did uh, the Hercules cycle. Oh, in that case, I'll go watch those. Yeah, because one of the Hercules ones is the one with deep hurting. <laughs> so, okay. I forget which one it was. <laughs> Apparently they did, oh, Hercules Unchained. Hercules Against the Moon Men, Hercules and the Captive. Oh, there we go. So, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of MST3K uh, Hercules films. They're mm-hmm. not bad. Yeah, that that's do that. Don't 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 watch them any other way. If <laughs> if you can, if you can avoid it, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> nifty. I will make a point of doing that just out of personal curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of personal masochistic curiosity, <laughs> because, because I gotta admit, I mean, it's it's like you said earlier. They made so damn many of these things. There must be something worthwhile that they saw out of these things. Mm-hmm. There must have been now. Actually, well, here's the question: Then, what what was the appeal to these things? Was it simply just a different kind of macho man kicking butt movie? Is that really what these were? And and you know, some half naked chicks, and that's simply what worked for them. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna say, what, what else do you need? But, <laughs> okay, good point. Good point. <laughs> I I think what you get with a lot of the kind of stuff that we've been talking about, and and mm-hmm. the next few things coming up. It's one of the reasons I'm contemptuous of the, and I'm doing finger quotes, the educated audience. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean like the audience that knows all the tricks and the tropes and how things are made. Right. Because I think there's an obsession with good that what I'm I'm watching, what I'm partaking of, what I'm a fan of has to be high quality because then it shows how intelligent and refined I am. Right. Whereas when you go back in the day, uh, the educated audience really kind of doesn't start till the Trekkies in like the 70s, I think. Right. You you had people who knew stuff, but there wasn't like a, like a knowledge-based pissing match of that. People just liked what they liked. Mm-hmm. And people like the big, the overblown, the surprising, the goofy, right. the comedic. And, and like a lot of these... Sword and Sandals, a lot of B-movies in general, they're all of that. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can totally see that. Yeah, they're weird, they're goofy, you just watch it for an hour and a half and you get a chuckle and maybe you see something scary and some cleavage and then, like, you get on with your life. That that was it. And that was why I think nowadays 
a lot of these genres and that kind of die out because there's way too much hand-wringing and, and pseudo-intellectualizing all of this stuff. Right. That if you did like a classic Sword and Sandals film, just from the preview, the internet would explode with, and that's not the accurate way they would have laced their sandals for that era, and it's got to be this era, right. because if you look at this, blah, 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 who fucking cares? I just want to see, like, you know, a sweaty guy in his underwear throw a giant rock at a silly paper mache monster. Like, that. that's what I'm here for. Right. Yep. No, no. Um, by the way, just complete side note. Uh, sorry to interrupt. There's actually a... Uh, a documentary about the sword and sandal films called Colossal, which I'll link to uh, in the show notes. And in fact, actually, it's a hundred minute documentary. It was basically about this era. And it, it's an Italian documentary. It's not an English one, but there is uh, it is up on YouTube and and you can use the um, auto translated uh, subtitles to kind of get the idea of what they're saying. Right. <laughs> uh, you have to turn on closed captions and you have to set to auto translate because the subtitles that are available are yeah only the automatic ones right but it is there and you can i don't know if a version of it exists for in english or not but uh so there is a documentary about these things that exist there's a point supposedly it was quite good mm-hmm. it's got some good reviews i'll, I'll link to it in the show notes huh. Um, going back to what I said earlier, though, I do think that there's a good percentage of it that simply they just didn't have another fantasy template at that point either. Yeah, there's that. It's it's part of it is is uh, climatization that if mm-hmm. one goes so, over, then that opens the door for all the rest. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I can totally see that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why stuff like this comes in bundles. Because if somebody does it and it goes over and they get away with it, mm-hmm. everybody does it. Like that was the thing we saw here um, for for uh, when South Park took off. Mm-hmm. That right. that quote unquote adult cartoons all had to be crappily done. Right, and it was because South Park did it. That became the new formula. So people, number one, didn't want to stray from the formula. And number two, you can get away with, like, super cheap-ass animation. So they did. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, no. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. They they show what will work. So therefore, people are just like, okay, let's do more of that. Yeah. Proof of concept. Yeah. Proof of concept. That makes absolute perfect sense. And then from the production side, if you get it to work once... Each time you do it, it gets a little easier because you've already got the infrastructure in place that you need for this. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's true. That's one of the reasons why, if you look, especially nowadays with CGI, if you go back, they did the uh, CGI Mighty Joe Young movie, mm-hmm. and then they did the CGI Planet of the Apes movie with Marky Mark in it. Yep, And then for a long time, we started seeing gorillas and everything because you've got the vectors done. You can do a CGI gorilla really easy because at this point, it's a plug-and-play pack. Pretty much, yeah. That's true. Each each level, each development actually brings it forward. And that's one of the scary things that's happening right now with with deepfakes Mm -hmm. is they're getting progressively better and better at it. Yeah, um, I, I'm referring to, of course, when the, in case you're not familiar, folks, uh, I'm talking about the 
technology where what you do is you basically are creating a CGI mask of an actor and you just can put it over someone else's head, basically, or face. So you're putting someone else's face on one person. So, for example, I take put, you know, I take one person, I take Don, for example, and I give him Barack Obama's head. And you and for a while there, it was it you could do it. It looked kind of okay, but you 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 do you're looking at computer graphics. But they're starting to reach the point where it doesn't look like computer graphics anymore. Mm-hmm. You can literally, I could just swap heads with different people. It's like, oh, I'll just replace uh, I'll replace Mark Hamill in this scene with Nicolas Cage. There we go. Yeah. And I, that's kind of what we're heading towards. I think I've mentioned that before, where I think we're eventually going to get reach the point where you'll just be able to pick with who the actors are in your movie. Yeah. And so you'll be able to watch. And then they'll even mess with the voices so you hear them like that way. And Anyway, but we're getting off track. I'm get, I'm wondering way off track at this point. <laughs> so, um, sorry, Sword and Sandals movies just kind of, uh, or whatever, Sword and Sandals movies kind of uh, fascinate me now. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll definitely have to kind of <laughs> give those a look. Yeah, do the riff tracks. Maybe not a long look, but I'll give them a look. Do the riff tracks, I'm telling you. Do the riff track. Don't, don't. Okay, yeah. Don't, I'll watch the MST3K version. Yeah, don't do them straight. Okay, I'll make a point of not trying to do it straight. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're incredible. The dubbing isn't great, I imagine, and they probably weren't great films to begin with. So between that, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's pretty cool. Okay, any other um, genres that you want to discuss for film genres that we're missing? Yeah, there's a couple for film. Um, hmm? One that that again, it's one of those weird encapsulated in time things that comes back in a different form and then goes mm-hmm. away again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with uh, the beach movie slash teen sex romp. Well, teen sex romps are pretty common on the internet, so I don't think that's really lost, but <laughs> I know. Put up bum. Um, okay, that's true. Well, again, the internet, we don't really need that anymore because that was the closest we had to porn back in those days, or, or our parents did, not me, because we're not that old. Well, no, we are, because what happened was, um, and we've mentioned this before on the show, mm-hmm. when you go to the 60s, the beach movie takes off. Like It started in the 50s, actually, but okay. Yeah, but in the 60s, it really, t- like again, it, it's one of these things, it takes off to a crazy level that there's so many of them, and there's so many different, like, like series of these things and it right. it was they're all exactly the same they follow the same formula again it was the idea that we couldn't show actual nudity at the theaters and get away with it mm-hmm. and even if we really wanted to you'd miss out on a bunch of your audience cuz um younger people wouldn't be able to to get in and this is your target audience in a lot of ways yeah mm-hmm. but we can show like you know uh, scantily clad bathing suit wearing 30 year old teenagers and it's pretty close Mm -hmm. and then you get your titillation and you can you can show that and it just took off yep when the 60s come to an end so do like the beach movies right but when you get to the late 70s going into the 80s after animal house Mm-hmm. You get the equivalent, which was was what I've seen referred to as the teen sex romp. There's a bunch of different terms, but it's the equivalent that again, it's that idea that we want to see like, and and again, we can show them naked now because the the the, mm-hmm. the standards have changed, but we can now show naked thirty year old teenagers, so they do. Yes, and and again, there was so many of them because it's Animal House kind of I think sets it off. 
Mm-hmm. And then Porky's took off, and then there every week there was like five more of these stupid things. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, yeah, if you weren't alive in the '80s, it's really hard to to wrap your head around. It's like it's like the sword and sandals things. It's hard to wrap your head around how prolific they were. Well, yeah, I mean, you just had to have some stupid sex comedy and some tits, and you had a movie, basically. Yep. And then they go away. Mm-hmm. And True. and then when they come back the third time, it doesn't quite hit the same level. It's it's I think again tastes have changed and we kind of have the internet. So if I want to see naked thirty year old teenagers, I just go online. Mm-hmm. But that exactly. So you're you with the third wave you're talking about is probably the American Pie wave, right? Yeah, there was that. There's Van Wilder. There was a couple of them, but it, again, it wasn't mm. it wasn't the same as like when that took off in the beginning of the eighties. Mm-hmm. Like the numbers just weren't there. Yeah, back in the eighties, there's a point where literally every movie, at least it was targeted towards you know, teens, basically had a naked woman in it. Like every one of them, whether she belonged there or not, they just stuck a naked woman in there somewhere. Oh yeah, every movie had a shower scene in the eighties. Yeah, or something equivalent. Yeah, shower scene, sex scene, whatever, uh, softcore sex scene, but but whatever. There, but there'd always be nudity in there somewhere. You could count on that. Changing scene, like there was, yeah, there was always. Yep. Oh, you're gonna see some tits at some point. That was a given in the eighties. Yep. yep, exactly. Even RoboCop has it. That's the changing scene you're probably <coughs> referring to. Um, I don't think Terminator does. No, Terminator's one of those rare ones that doesn't. Terminator has a sex scene. Oh, you're right. It does, doesn't it? And it has okay, naked Arnie. Oh, that's true. Okay, yeah. Being being you know, fair, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay, so there we go. So we have... Uh, so those movies go through time. And again, as you said, the, it was basically pretty much killed by the internet because we didn't need to go to the movie theaters to see nude people anymore. Yeah. So that wasn't a big deal. It's amazing how many things disappeared because of the internet. Well, yeah. Cause they, That's another one. Yeah, they don't disappear, they change. And then that goes with what I was saying, that idea of when mm-hmm. the new medium comes out, yeah, things gravitate that way and then they kind of die out in the old medium because the money is always with the new one. Right, yeah. Hmm. Very true. Very, mm-hmm. very true. When you, okay, any other movies? Any other genres, I should say? Yeah, I think the, the, the main one that I'm going to get into... Because it's another one that sort of dies out in the 80s, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, is I'm going to say the straight up monster movie. Define monster movie in this case. A uh, movie about a weird monster. And I'm I'm saying that they, okay. they still make them, but I find what you get nowadays is the monsters tend to be more, more grounded, like they try to come up more backstory. Mm-hmm. And they also tend to fall into a number of very specific categories. Right. Like most monster movies nowadays are ghost movies. Mm-hmm. But they work a certain way. Because I'm thinking back, um, I'm thinking back to say the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. Where the B movies, you didn't have a budget, you didn't have special effects. So you just came up with the craziest thing you could and put it on the screen. Pretty much, yeah. Now that we have technology and money and effects, nobody's really coming up with anything that crazy. It all again, it all fits. Oh, it's another one of these. Well, it goes back to that idea that they're terrified to produce something that looks like cheesy, basically. Yeah, they're they're terrified to be laughed at. 
pretty much. And so they're trying to do it the right way and produce a monster that looks cool. And uh, now, not that they shouldn't. I mean, of course, we all want our monsters to look cool in monster movies and such. But I think they're not willing to take risks anymore. That's one of the reasons why those ghost movies you mentioned, like Annabelle and such, are perfect. Because realistically, you don't need it, you know, a bunch of CGI monster effects. You just have a creepy doll and a few little bit of CGI here and there and you're good to go. Yeah, or or you do like a zombie film. Yeah, that was a big thing, and a zombie's a zombie. So there you go. But yeah, there was there. They still make monster movies, but again, it's 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 different. And I think it's it's like you're right. They're afraid. I think part of that too. I blame on like the educated audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember listening to uh, one movie review where they were talking about the Friday the Thirteenth movies, mm-hmm. and the people doing a review couldn't wrap their head around, well, what is Jason? Is he like a zombie or is he, he's Jason. That's all you have to know. He does this. There's nothing deeper, but they couldn't wrap their head around it because they couldn't fit it into one of these like established categories of monster types. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Which is doubly irritating because he's a psycho killer. That's since the 80s has been an established monster type. Right. But... As you just point out, there are correct ways to do it. There are types now. Everything's been classified. Everything's been TV troped. Yeah, basically. And it has. And if it doesn't fall into one of those boxes, people get upset. Yeah, and that's and like I say, that to me is the problem with the educated audience because good. And I'm doing finger quotes again. Mm-hmm. Usually, ultimately equals what you expect and what the current standard for doing this is. Hmm. That's very true. Although, in fairness, I mean, not to be all judgmental, I can remember doing versions of that back in my twenties too. Yeah, I, like I, I can remember watching like vampire movies. Going, no, that's not right. Vampires don't act like that, and things like that back in the day. See, that's because I remember doing kind of the opposite. That well, you're not me, so that explains that. That's true because I remember like cataloging them, but I didn't get wrapped around the axles to whether or not it fit. Like if I saw a vampire movie, it's like vampires don't do that. To me, it was this is a weird new kind of vampire, right? Whereas again, whereas yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no. Whereas I would be like, well, you know, according to like werewolf lore or vampire lore, they should do this, this, and this, and they're not doing that, so therefore this movie is horribly flawed. Yeah, and, and, and nowadays we've taken that to the nth degree where, you know, if, if you're mm-hmm. doing that, the internet will, like, just scream and howl and and, and and that over, you know, oh, like, he's got, like, fangs on the bottom, vampires are like that, this is terrible. Exactly. I, eventually I grew out of it, but, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the way it works. Um, hopefully they will grow out of it eventually too and just learn to just relax and just, no, just go with it. It's fine. It's more fun that way. Yeah, because that's the, the the classic line about that. Mm-hmm. If you're wondering how he eats and breathes and other things in space. Uh, well, how does that go? Or how he eats and breathes and other science facts. Repeat to yourself, it's just a film. I should really just relax. What's that from? Mystery Science Theater. Of course. That's right in the opening yeah, okay. sequence. Yeah. And that, again, I think that's kind of uh, good advice that people don't... It is. It's great advice. Yeah. Like, you're already watching a movie about something that doesn't exist. It can't be less real than something else that doesn't exist. It's... Right. 
monster movies. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't generally make too many of them. I mean, they still pop up, but not very often anymore. Yeah, and like I say, they're usually it's it's not the same. It's 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 what people would refer to as as B movies. Is kind of what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, when they make them now, they're way structured. They follow a specific pattern. The monsters are all like you can type them real easy anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, because again, they're doing it the proper way or the right way, yeah. as you said. Yeah, yeah, it does take something out of it. That's true. And that's probably one of the reasons why people would argue a lot of the horror have gone out of American films. And so, you know, Asian horror got so popular is because they're still just willing to do weird shit. Well, they have their ruts too, but any rut that's not your own is new. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So, monster movies, definitely. Anything else? Ah, uh, for film? It kind of ties in. The last thing I'll say for film that kind of ties in with uh, TV mm-hmm. is line animation. You mean 2D animation? Yeah, you can call it that. I don't necessarily call it 2D because a lot of a lot of it would simulate three dimensions. Mm-hmm. But nobody does. It's all CGI, and and the thing that I find with that is, it all really kind of starts looking alike. Yeah, you got that back starting in the '90s with uh, I'd seen it referred to as the California style, mm-hmm. which if you've seen like Iron Giant. Yeah, the way the characters are designed, that became the standard for for animated films, mm-hmm. and then everything looked like that. And then when they started switching to CGI, everything looks the same. I wouldn't say everything looks the same exactly, but there are definite uh, commonalities, and there are definite. Because um, hmm. I'm thinking. I have seen stuff that where they're being more experimental. I would argue that it took them a while to get CGI to the point where they were comfortable with it. And now they're experimenting with it more and more. Like uh, Into the Spider-Verse would actually be a good example of them experimenting with it more. Um, they tried to make things a little more cartoony and more like a comic book with that movie. And it makes it a very different film stylistically and everything than most other stuff. Like say the Pixar stuff, for example. Yeah, I, th- I think you're 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 kind of right, but I think the problem is there's a definite Pixar style, and that's the dominant oh, one. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and it made a gazillion dollars, dude. That's why. Yeah, and what you're talking about, let's say, like Enter the Spider Verse, mm-hmm. that's a bit more varied, but it it comes from the other style of CGI that they do. Mm-hmm. Which is that weird kind of uh, I don't know how to describe it the flat color kind of thing like um, if you're watching like uh, Star Wars Rebels does that mm-hmm. okay like the the current one the, the are you talking about no you're, you don't mean Star Wars Rebels then you mean um, Renegade Star Wars what the hell is the, the current one it's not Renegade it's the one where it's all space fighter based. Starfighter, isn't it, or something like that? No, 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 no. It's 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 the one that's it's it's not the one with Ezra. It's the one with the guy who's almost Ezra. Uh, it's the one that's the guy who's... it's the one that's currently running. Resistance. Resistance. That's yeah. It. Yeah. That yeah. That's it. That it's got this. I could only get through like part of one episode, and then it 
I just didn't bother to go back. It's not bad, but you kind of got to let it happen. It starts really bad, but halfway through the first season... Because part of it, too, I think, is it's got that weird style that you have to get used to. And that style just drives me nuts. I don't like that style at all. Yeah, like, there a lot of the early CGI TV shows, like the weird Iron Man one where he was a teenager, did that, too. Mm-hmm. Cell-shaded CGI, basically. Yeah. Where it's meant to kind of simulate a 2D cartoon... Yeah, but it's it's the way we do it because like I've seen stuff out of Japan that looks awesome, mm-hmm. but we yeah. do it, it. It looks weird and flat. And Enter the Spider Verse was kind of a competent way of doing that, mm-hmm. but it was still very similar to that kind of idea and that kind of design. That's true. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. Um, yeah, in that sense, you're right. I mean, let's face it. I mean. There are very, very few places that are still doing proper 2D animation. Uh, most places are doing, at minimum, even the Japanese are usually doing 2D, 3D mixes. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, they're kind of a hybrid at this point. Sometimes the characters will still be 2D, or line animation, as you say, but pretty much their entire environment and everything else will be CGI, because it's just easier to work with and faster. Yeah, the only thing is, like, when Japan does it, they still do make a point of trying to make it look like uh, like regular line animation. Mm, true. Because I find the problem with, like, the cel-shaded stuff, and, and that is it tends to not be uh, very expressive. Yes, it's a little bit stiff and flat, yeah. Yeah. You're right, no, you're completely right, whereas the... Uh... The line animation is much more expressive. It feels much more natural and organic than the cel-shaded stuff does. I'm with you on that. Yeah, and, and they all, they also had the advantage that there was more established templates to draw from. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, the newer stuff, like I say, a lot of CGI stuff, it, it looks like a Pixar film. Yeah. Because of the design. And that Pixar design is actually just the CGI 3D version of, like, what they used to call the California style mm. with the oversized heads and the, 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 the weird like big velvet painting kids eyes on them and stuff. Right. Yep. Because it worked. That's kind of what they eventually figured out. Oh, audiences like this. So let's just do it this way. Yeah. That, and that's what everybody ended up being taught. And that, that too. And that's why I say I'm 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 always leery about the educated fan because then that becomes the right way. And if you do something different, people hum and ha and poop and all that about mm-hmm. you know, oh you're not doing it right. Right. Okay, so um that's is that movies then? Yeah, that's pretty much it for film, I think. Okay. I know Don, you want to talk about uh books and games and music. And other topics uh, about genres and forms that that have been lost to time. But unfortunately, speaking of time, we're pretty much out for this week. So I think we're going to have to shelve those and do a Stuff Lost to Time Part 2 episode in the near future. Sorry about that. Makes sense. (laughs) Okay, folks. Well, hopefully you've uh, had your memory jogged or maybe your curiosity tapped. And uh, we'll tune in next time to find out more about the things that were lost to time. Unless this podcast People kind of sort of remember. Mm -hmm. Hmm? Unless we're the next thing to vanish.
that could happen too. But then again, maybe it'll be humanity that is. And so in which case, we won't be alone. Ooh, apocalypse. Exactly. Apocalypse yesterday. All right. So <laughs> thanks for listening, folks. Um, and tune in next time for maybe more on this topic, maybe something else. Who knows? We might surprise you. Until then, uh, I'm Rob Patterson. This is my uh, co-host, Don Chisholm. Good night and God bless. Say, apocalypse films are another one of those things that kind of disappeared. Sort of. I mean, there's dystopian films and such have been popular for a bit, but we don't have a lot of pure apocalypse films anymore. You're right. Mm. Oh, well, we'll talk more about that next time. Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!